Just after 7 p.m. local time in Houston, Texas, on Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, two baseball teams took to the field to play Game 6 of the World Series. It was a packed house in Houston as the home team, the Astros, were attempting to even the series and force a Game 7, a win-or-go-home situation for them that was putting this team in a tough spot. The Houston Astros as a team were dealing with a lot at that moment. In 2020, it had been revealed that the Houston Astros had been cheating during the 2017 MLB season using a sign-stealing plan that is so complicated to explain here that I won't even begin to try, but needless to say, baseball fans are no fans of the Astros. What you need to know is this, they cheated and they won a bunch because of it and everyone has been mad. Continued investigations and speculations followed them. There was a lot of debate about whether or not they had cheated in more than just 2017, and even though many players from that year were gone, a few remained. The problem in 2021 was that the Astros were not cheating, and they were still impossible to beat. They powered through the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox to become the American League champions and to make their way to the World Series. They had been to the World Series twice before in the last several years. They made it in 2019, and they won the World Series in 2017, the exact same year in which they were caught cheating. But now, it was 2021, and they had something to prove. They could be good, and they didn't need to cheat. And a lot of that had to do with their manager, who was never involved in the scandalous years. He was MLB legend and easily one of the most likable people in baseball, a man named Johnny Baker, but everybody just called him Dusty. Dusty Baker. He was born in California in 1949, the firstborn child to his parents. He was a messy kid and he earned himself the nickname Dusty from his mother. His father was an Air Force technician who would spend his off time coaching Dusty in Little League games. His father wanted badly for Dusty to be an athlete and Dusty had the talent to back it up. Dusty could have played in any sport and his father was becoming a bit desperate. With his parents going through a divorce and Dusty struggling to figure out where he'd wind up, he was probably glad to know that a team was interested in bringing him into the fold through the amateur draft. That team was the Braves. But it was 1967 and as a young black man, Dusty was anxious. He would sign to the Braves thanks to one man, Hank Aaron, but we'll talk about him more in a moment. Dusty made his debut on September 7th, 1968. He played that game against the Houston Astros, the team he now coaches. Back in 2021, Dusty, the manager of the Houston Astros, and his team was playing in the World Series against the team that drafted him over 50 years previous, the Atlanta Braves. The Atlanta Braves were the underdog the entire year. After having a slow start to the season and losing their star player, Ronald Acuna Jr., to injury, no one was expecting the Braves to make it to the World Series, but they believed in their own skills and powered by great players like first baseman Freddie Freeman and pitcher Max Fried, the Braves moved through the Milwaukee Brewers and the Los Angeles Dodgers to become the National League champions for the first time since 1999. They lost the 1999 World Series to my New York Yankees, but it was 22 years later and they were back. They won game one, lost game two. Okay, take a breath. They win game three and four in close battles. All they needed to do was win game five and it was over, but on Halloween 2021, the Astros played an amazing game and forced a game six. Now it was game six and the Braves did the impossible. They scored seven runs and gave up none to the Astros. Final score, seven to nothing. Braves won the World Series and everybody went home happy. And it was a particularly specific moment for Atlanta and baseball at large. 
You see, earlier that year, just two months before the season started, Hank Aaron died. He was 86 years old. Hank Aaron, also known as Hammer and Hank, or by his true name, Henry Aaron, is one of the single greatest baseball players of all time, and easily the greatest player that the Atlanta Braves have ever known. That team is synonymous with his name. When you think Braves, you think Hank. Hank, who mentored Dusty Baker, who managed the team playing against Hank's own Braves. It felt like the World Series was just there to honor Hank Aaron and the impact he had on the game. For over 20 years, from 1954 to 1976, the game of baseball was defined by the presence of Henry Aaron, and the year he died, the team that defined his legacy won the World Series. As they say, how can you not be romantic about baseball? But Hank Aaron knew baseball was more than romance. Baseball mattered. It had the ability to change the world, and before he was an Atlanta Brave, he was a Jacksonville Brave. He swung the bat right here in Florida. His time in the Sunshine State would change the way that he played the game forever. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Hank Aaron in Jacksonville. How the greatest hitter of his generation got his start in Florida, and how his legacy is still impacting the sport of baseball to this very day. My guest this week is Terrence Moore. He is a journalist of many decades, currently working for Forbes, host of a weekly sports show in Atlanta, Georgia, where he lives, and a visiting professor of journalism at his alma mater. He is also an author. He recently published a book called The Real Hank Aaron, a book I picked up to get to know the man better. But see, I'm a diehard baseball fan. I know who Hank Aaron is. Perhaps you, dear listener, do as well, but if you don't, I would love for this episode to be the thing that introduces you to one of the greatest American athletes of all time, one of my favorites, one of the best, the great Henry Hank Aaron. If you had to introduce him and his sort of presence in, in baseball to someone who knows nothing of him, how would you describe him as a, as a figure in baseball history? Hank Aaron was the 1A or 1B greatest and most important player in the history of Major League Baseball. And the 1A or 1B on the other side would be Jackie Robinson. And I can confidently say that for a lot of reasons. That's right. Hank Aaron is on the caliber of one of the most important athletes of all time, Jackie Robinson. But we'll come back to that in a moment. First, I need you to hear a clip that has been going around a lot lately. It is from April 8th, 1974. The Atlanta Braves, the team Hank Aaron played for, was playing against the Los Angeles Dodgers in Atlanta. It was the fourth game of the 1974 season, their first home game of the year. On opening day of 1974, against the Cincinnati Reds, Hank Aaron hit a home run. It was the 714th of his career. 714, in case you are unaware, is an astronomically high number of home runs for a baseball player. He was 40 in his 21st season in the major leagues. Hitting 714 home runs was a big deal, that number specifically, because that was the number that Babe Ruth hit in his career. If someone doesn't know anything about baseball, they know who Babe Ruth is. He hit home runs. That was his whole thing. Well, on April 4th, 1974, Hank Aaron tied Babe Ruth's number of home runs in his career, and then on April 8th, in front of a sold-out crowd in his home field, a pitch was thrown to Hank Aaron in his second at-bat at the night. It missed well below the strike zone. It actually hit the dirt. 
The count was 1-0, one ball, no strikes. The second pitch was struck by Hank Aaron and sent sailing into left center field. It left the field of play, Hank Aaron's 715th home run. He had just beaten Babe Ruth's home run record. He had just become the most home run hitting player in baseball history at that time. Oh, and most importantly, he tied the game. As Hank Aaron rounded the bases, people literally rushed onto the field. Fans just wanted to be near him, and in this iconic shot of him rounding the bases, making history, there are guys just running next to him, chasing him down. They just loved him, and when he made it to home plate, his whole team was around him. They hoisted him in the air, the towering hero. His family came on the field. It was a moment for the ages. At the same time, in the Dodgers radio booth, a man named Vin Scully was calling the game for Dodgers fans. Vin Scully was the voice of the Dodgers for 67 years, including during the Jackie Robinson years. He retired in 2016, and he passed away just three weeks ago on August 2nd. It was a sad day for baseball fans. Vin was an iconic part of the game. But a clip was being played that I have heard before, but now carries extra meaning. It's Vin talking about Hank, and now they're both gone. But here's what Vin had to say as the team he was opposing tied up the game. Vin knew the importance of Hank Aaron's home run, not just for the sport, but for the United States and the world. Listen to what Vin Scully had to say. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. I've never listened to that clip and not cried. I cry every time. I cried writing this episode. I'm sure I'm going to cry editing it. It's a special, special moment because it shows everything that was important. With the swing of a bat, Hank Aaron made history. But my guest, Terrence Moore, he tells me we have to always connect this story back to Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, the baseball player who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, who first broke the Minor League Baseball color barrier here in Florida, in Daytona, 
is important to the story of Hank Aaron. Jackie Robinson played baseball for 10 seasons, all with the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1947 to 1956. Henry Aaron, or Hank Aaron, he actually preferred to be Henry Aaron in private, but everybody kind of called him Hank Aaron, so you'll hear me saying both, especially in quotes, but I, I just tend to call him Hank. Anyway, Hank was 13 years old when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Hank was born February 5th, 1934, in Mobile, Alabama. Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier for black players, was still in the bigs when Hank Aaron, a talented black ball player himself, made his way in in 1954. That's how immediate their overlap was. They were playing at the same time. But Jackie Robinson's impact on Hank Aaron cannot be overstated. Jackie Robinson was Hank's idol from a playing standpoint and certainly from a personal standpoint. And let's start with Jackie Robinson. You can't talk about Jackie Robinson without talking about Hank Aaron. Jackie Robinson, for as big as he was as a player, and what he did at breaking a color barrier on April 15th, 1947, and what he did during his uh, decade with the Brooklyn Dodgers, he was so much more after that. He was basically LeBron James before LeBron James, Jackie Robinson, a guy that was really big into uh, social issues, civil rights, he marched with Dr. King and doesn't get enough credit for that. Very outspoken and attacked for being outspoken by uh, whites and blacks through the years with various stances, but he took a stand. That's very, very important to understand when I get to Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron told me this story and, and this is something that he never told anybody else before. When Jackie Robinson died in October of 1972, Hank Aaron went to Willie Mays and Ernie Banks and said, now that Jackie has died, it is up to us to carry on his mission when it comes to social issues and so on and so forth. And Hank told me that both Willie Mays and Ernie Banks shook their heads and ran the other way. Willie Mays and Ernie Banks are also essential figures in the story. Willie, legend of the New York, then San Francisco Giants, and Ernie Banks of the great Chicago Cubs. They were both black players at the same time as Hank Aaron, but according to Terrence, they didn't fight the fight the way that Hank did. He said, we don't want any part of that. And the reason they didn't want any part of that was because they were so conscious of their image, particularly in white America, that they thought that that would ruin their image, and it probably would have. And Hank's response, and this is all you need to know about Hank, or at least one of the things, Hank said, you know what? I just do it myself. And so from that point, Hank Aaron became Jackie Robinson. And this is the side of Hank Aaron that people miss. Hank Aaron was so much more than 755, just like Jackie Robinson was so much more than April 15, 1947. Because immediately after Hank retired after 23 years of playing 21 with the Braves of Milwaukee and Atlanta in two years with the Milwaukee Brewers, he immediately became an executive with the Atlanta Braves. And at the time, he was only the second black executive in the history of Major League Baseball. Terrence says that Hank was aware of possible comparisons with another black athlete of the time, Muhammad Ali. People have this selective amnesia with uh, prominent black people, athletes or otherwise, who are, who are outspoken. There's this metamorphosis that take place. During the time when they're outspoken, particularly about societal ills, they're, uh, they're considered uh, just to the left or to the right of the devil. And I call it the Muhammad Ali thing. I'm old enough to remember in the 60s where people hated Muhammad Ali. I'm talking about black and white, couldn't stand him, okay? But 
by the last 10 or 15 years of Muhammad Ali's death, and certainly after his death, it was like, where are these same people? The same people that were ripping them were talking about what a great guy he was, about how he stood for his principles. Well, what was the difference between Muhammad Ali at the end and, and before? Well, the difference was in the minds of the people who suddenly, quote, saw the light, unquote, in their minds, he wasn't, wasn't he was harmless. I mean, he couldn't bother them anymore. But Hank Aaron didn't shy away from opportunities to speak on things that mattered to him ever, despite the double standard he faced most of his career just because he was black. One of the things that has held true forever, that if you are, are an African-American, in order to succeed in this society, you have to be way extra compared to your white uh, counterparts. That's always been the case. And then people say, well, what do you mean? I mean, sports is like a great equalizer. Uh, well, they're not paying attention either that or they're just being stupid. And one of the things that Hank Aaron was very well aware of, along with anybody else who got any kind of sense, that one of the things that baseball did, which is what society did uh, from the very beginning, and it's, it's held true all the way through, unless you are exceptional or at least very good, talking about from an African-American standpoint, you're not going to have a chance. You're not going to be allowed to get in, in 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 the game, so to speak, whatsoever. And then you also have to be, certainly back in that period, when Hank was coming up in the 40s and the 50s, in the early years, you had to be extraordinary when it came to the mental, to be able to put up with all the stuff you had to put up with, not only on the field, but also off the field. Which brings us to Jacksonville, Florida, and Hank Aaron's stint playing baseball in the Sunshine State, where that exact sentiment that Terrence just mentioned was put to the test. My other resource for this episode, real quick, provides a lot of insight into that era of Hank's life. It's a book titled The Last Hero, A Life of Henry Aaron by Howard Bryant. While Terrence's book is a lovely portrait of Hank as a person and how he felt about his life and legacy, Howard Bryant's book is more of a timeline biography, and his pages on Hank's time in the minor leagues are very illuminative. You're going to hear me quoting them a lot in the next couple of minutes. Hank was playing in the Negro Leagues, but in 1953, he made his way over to the Jacksonville Braves, a minor league team in the Southern Atlantic League, often called the Sally League, as everyone just called it that. Everybody just called it the Sally League. The Sally League actually still exists to this day, even though many teams in it are in northern states like Pennsylvania and New York. I digress. The Jacksonville Braves were renamed that title that year. Their logo was just a J, though they also had a patch that was a cartoon of a Native American man and a large headdress that is an unfortunately very common logo in professional sports. The Jacksonville Braves played in a field that remarkably still stands today. Today, it's called the James P. Small Park. It's in western downtown Jacksonville, just a hop from I-95 as it rumbles north across the St. John's River. It's the same stadium, still standing, with the historic layout, the same spot that housed the Jacksonville Braves 70 years ago. But when Hank made it to that park in western Jacksonville, he was entering a world that was hostile to him, in a league that was struggling to change. 
Howard Bryant's book says, quote, Henry Aaron and a handful of others would be the first black players in what was widely considered to be the most hostile league for blacks in the minor league system, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, the Sally League's reputation combined with cities and states that comprised it was so formidable that big league teams, the Red Sox and Cardinals primarily, used the fear of conflict in their minor league affiliations in the South as reasons the big league teams did not integrate, end quote. So if you're a total novice to baseball, that's fine. Let me clarify a little bit what I just said. The minor league teams are usually mostly connected with the major league teams. Guys can move from minors into the majors. And in the time of integration, some teams didn't integrate even their minor league teams, even as Jackie Robinson was a sensation in Brooklyn due to fear of conflict between their baseball teams and the still harshly segregated Jim Crow Southern states, especially the Southern states that made up the Sally League, where Hank was playing. Hank was entering into an environment that was tense, to say the least. But Hank wasn't alone. His roommate and friend was a man named Felix Mentia. Felix was not African-American. Felix was from Puerto Rico, but because he had dark skin, he was considered black by the league. And because black players were not allowed to room with white players, most minor league teams would bring in black players in pairs so that they could room with each other, and no white player was sharing a bunk with a black player. But Mantia and Hank were friends, even though Mantia did not speak English. They had a comfort with each other. They were allies on the field and off. And on the field, they were essential. The Jacksonville Minor League team, which has had many names over the years, including many years as the Tars through the first half of the 20th century, were not very successful. Not a successful team there in Jacksonville. Quote, Jacksonville hadn't finished first in the league since 1912. End quote. That's a long time. That's over 40 years of subpar baseball. But in 1953, with Mantilla and the power hitter Hank Aaron on the team, there was a chance to maybe be on top. Hank, in particular, was a sensation at the plate, as he would be for the rest of his career. The man just had an ability to find the ball and bring his bat to it. In that year, 1953, Hank had, quote, a 362 average, 22 home runs, 36 doubles, 14 triples, 115 runs scored, 125 runs batted in, and 208 total bases, end quote. In non-baseball terms, the man was good. He was really, really good. He was 19. He's just amazing. That year, in 1953, the Braves did come out on top. They won the pennant, and Hank was named the MVP for the Sally League that year. In a league that was notorious for being one of the least likely to integrate, a black man won the MVP. But despite his on-the-field successes, the world off the diamond kept reminding Hank of the truth, and even sometimes on the field. Bryant says that pitchers would throw at him and the white players on his own teams were wary, if not outright hostile to him. The fans in the stands were segregated and sometimes arguments would break out in the seats. And if a bad call was made by an umpire, as there often is in baseball, black players were not allowed to argue with umpires in order to not anger the white crowds. Hank would be heckled from the field, called the worst things you could imagine, and he couldn't respond for those same reasons as before. In one incident, recalled by Mantilla years later, a fan congratulated them on an amazing win for the team in the same sentence as he called them a slur. No matter how good you were, the people still reminded you 
that you weren't fully welcome here, no matter what uniform you were wearing or how hard you were hitting the ball. Sure, they'd warm to you, but they always reminded you that they were white and you were black. And traveling with the team was even more concerning. While the major leagues played in larger towns, especially larger cities in the north, the Sally League was playing in regular old towns around Georgia. Still major towns, but still major southern towns. Jim Crow towns, which meant a segregated environment. A writer from the famous Saturday Evening Post did a profile on Hank during this time. The writer was named Furman Bisher. Bisher wrote that Henry, quote, led the league in everything except hotel accommodations, end quote. A great joke, but a troubling one, to say the least. Bisher spent some time with Hank and got to know the man and his life and wrote an article about him. In it, he paints a portrait of Hank as a person that was inaccurate and clearly upsetting to Hank. It painted him as a perhaps naive or quiet or aloof individual. It didn't paint him as the dynamic person that he clearly was, and it took absolutely no consideration of the fact that Hank's sometimes muted personality was because of the environment he was in. Howard Bryant writes, quote, Bisher and by extension Henry's teammates and the men in the Jacksonville front office captured Henry's reticence, but they interpreted his hesitancy as an inability to navigate or a lack of intelligence instead of recognizing the social forces at work, end quote. Jacksonville left a mark in his legacy, in his personality, and in his hesitancy to allow journalists to besmirch him like that again. But it wasn't all bad for Hank Aaron in Jacksonville. There was one particular bright spot. He met his first wife, Barbara Lucas, there. She was from Jacksonville, and she attended a Braves game one night where Hank Aaron was playing. They soon began dating, and they were married that year, despite resistance from Barbara's parents who, quote, did not want her to become serious with a ball player, end quote. Though that marriage would end in divorce in 1971, Barbara and Hank had five kids together. Last year, for Game 3 of the World Series in Atlanta, Hank's kids and Hank's second wife, the woman who he was married to from 1973 until the day he passed away, Mrs. Billy Aaron, threw out the first pitch, honoring Hank with the team he was most known for, the Braves. But how did he get to the Braves? How did he become an Atlanta Brave, or rather, a Milwaukee Brave? Because that's what they were at the time. We'll get to that in a second. After Jacksonville, Hank played winter ball in Puerto Rico, and in the new year, 1954, Hank Aaron was playing for the Toledo Sox, which was an affiliate of the Milwaukee Braves. That was the name of the team before they became the Atlanta Braves. They were the Milwaukee Braves. A brief history of the Atlanta Braves, they were actually a Boston team for most of their existence, nearly 80 years. Formed in 1871, they were the Boston Red Stockings. They eventually became the Boston Braves. Then the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee in 1953 and were the Milwaukee Braves until 1966 when they moved to Atlanta and became the Atlanta Braves, which they have been ever since. The Milwaukee Brewers, which is probably the team you've heard of, came to replace the team in 1970, so now there's the Milwaukee Brewers and the Atlanta Braves. Wild. Anyway, Hank was in the Milwaukee Braves system, where he expected to play the whole 1954 season in the minor leagues. But fate gave him a chance. He was down in Florida, Bradenton, where the Milwaukee Braves did their spring training before the season. In spring training, minor league players often get chances to start, and that was the case, but Hank wasn't starting yet. There were many guys playing ahead of him, but in a game in St. Petersburg, Florida, things changed. They were playing my team, the Yankees. It was March 13th, and a star power hitter named Bobby Thompson was on first base. Andy Pafko was at the plate, and he knocked a ball into the infield. 
both runners were out in a double play. But the runner on first, Bobby Thompson, got hurt when he made it to the second base. The second baseman, Woody Held, was standing at the base to get Thompson out and, quote, Thompson had slid to avoid Held's relay and suffered a triple fracture of the right ankle, end quote. With Thompson out the following day, Hank Aaron was in the lineup and he registered two hits in that game. He spent spring training, quote, leading his team in home runs, extra base hits, and runs batted in, end quote. I'm telling you, it doesn't stop. The man is... The man just hit the ball. It's just what he did. By the end of spring training, he had a contract. He wasn't in the minors anymore. He was headed to the major leagues as a Milwaukee Brave. The rest is history. Hank Aaron used to talk about this all the time, that contrary to popular belief, uh, Jackie Robinson didn't prove that blacks could play baseball. Uh, baseball already knew that. Baseball establishment, they were afraid of that because blacks were dominant in the Negro leagues and so on and so forth. And immediately, Jack Robinson takes over. And in 47, uh, he wasn't the best player they could have gotten from the Negro leagues, but he was the best, best player, I should say, uh, physically and, and just as a player. But as far as everything involved, to be able to handle what he had to handle, he was the best player for the decade he played with the, uh, the Dodgers. But immediately after Jackie Robinson comes into to play, you start having African-Americans winning MVP awards, Cy Young awards, Rookie of the Year awards. And then we get to the 1960s, and people don't want to talk about this. In the 1960s, at the end of the decade, the best players at the end of the decade of the 60s were Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, arguably either Bob Gibson or Roberto Clemente or Frank Robinson and or all of the above, none of which look like uh, Babe Ruth or, or Mickey Mantle or Lou Gehrig. Then you get to the 1970s. Uh, I grew up as a diehard Big Red Machine fan. Greatest team of all time. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. The Big Red Machine was the Cincinnati Reds team that played throughout the 70s. They're easily considered one of the greatest teams in baseball history. They were outstanding and well-known for having some of the best black players of that decade on their team, including the great Ken Griffey Sr., well, guess what? That was, instead of the big red machine, it should have been called the big black machine because the only two regular starters on that uh, lineup who were white were Pete Rose and Johnny Bench. 1970s, 1971 World Series, 1971 All-Star Game. Both starting pitchers were black. The most viable player of that All-Star Game, and I mentioned that All-Star Game, is considered one of the best of all time. Most viable player of that All-Star Game, Frank Robinson, African-American. The most outstanding player, I say most outstanding player, Reggie Jackson, who was African-American, outstanding player because he hit the, the, the home run, the famous home run that hit the light tower in right field of Tiger Stadium. Okay, Then you go to the mid-70s, the Pittsburgh Pirates did something that had not been done before or since, where they fielded an all-black team. Terrence mentions that he did research for many years that suggested that the powers that be were starting to believe that African-American players had become too dominant in the game and started to put things in place to prevent great African-American players like Hank from making it into the big leagues, including not making opportunities for baseball to be available to kids in historically black parts of the U.S. 
This was something that upset Hank Aaron for obvious reasons and something that Terrence Moore has done loads of research on. I'll include a link in the episode description so you can read more about that because it is fascinating and very in-depth. Terrence talked a lot about it and I just want you to read it because it's really, really interesting. As Terrence mentioned up top, even off the field, Hank had causes he fought for at any cost, and making sure that African-American players had a place in the game was just one of the things he fought for until the day he died. But the truth of Hank Aaron's impact has never faded. Never. Last year, in the 2021 season, it was kind of all about Hank. Yeah, you, you know, the uh, what happened last year in 2021 in baseball had to happen because it had Hank Aaron's fingerprints all over it. He dies in January of 2021, and then you have this magical Braves team, this Braves team that was led by the pixie dust of Hank Aaron in so many ways. I mean, there was no way in the world that the Braves were supposed to make the playoffs, let alone go on and win the World Series. I mean, had all these horrific injuries, including to their best player, Ronald Acuna. Uh, pitchers going down. Mike Soroka, the Soroka, their best pitcher, he's out of the, the lineup. Their uh, their cleanup hitter, uh, uh, Ozuna, he's gone for the year. And, you know, and then they don't get get above 500 until uh, the first week of August. You cannot lose the fact that this is all meant to be the Dusty Baker factor. Here is the opposing manager that's standing in the way of, of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, winning the first world championships in 1995. And this was almost, there was almost a cruelty to this, that it had to be Dusty Baker. Because Dusty Baker was Hank's unofficial son. And, and, and not only with the Braves, but just in general. Because when Hank uh, played for the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, uh, Dusty Baker and Ralph Gard, these two young African-American kids, uh, as Hank pointed out to me many times, he said everywhere he went, those guys went. They were, you know, they, they, they just in, were in awe of Hank Aaron. So here we are with that Dusty Baker, uh, this brilliant manager who still is looking for his first world championship ever. And this is one of his best chances, the best team he's had out of many very good teams. And he has to do it against this, this team that is destined to win it all because of Hank Aaron. I mean, it was, it was sort of... Uh, Bittersweet in so many ways. Bittersweet in so many ways. I like that sentiment. That's how I describe so many great baseball stories. A little happy, a little sad, a little bitter, a little sweet. It's a bittersweet sport. It really is. Anybody who loves this game knows that to be true. Even the most wonderful moments that you experience always come with a twinge of nostalgia or heartache. That's just the game. At least for Hank Aaron, in my opinion. It turned out to be a little less bitter and a lot more sweet. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. I love talking about baseball, guys. I really do. If you enjoyed this baseball episode, man, I have made a ton of baseball episodes. I talk about the athletics, the Philadelphia athletics and their relationship to Thomas Edison earlier this year. I talked about the Havana Sugar Kings, one of my favorite episodes ever, maybe. And I even talked about the history of why spring training even happens in Florida. So go listen to those episodes. They're in the episode description. I hope to write about baseball more. 
It is truly my favorite sport. If you know me, you know how much I love baseball. And there is so much Florida baseball history. We'll talk about it more. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. If you want to share the show, you can do so on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. And you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Terrence Moore for taking the time to chat with me. I'll include a link to pick up a copy of his book. It is a wonderful read if you want to know even more about the man, the myth, the legend, Henry Aaron. Go check out his book and thank you again to Terrence Moore. All right, I will be back next week for the finale of this season. I'm so excited for it. We're going to take a little break after that episode. There's going to be less episodes through the month of September, but there will be episodes in September. I promise you what they're about. Well, you're just going to have to wait and see. But October's on the horizon, and I have got some spooky stuff planned for us. All right, I will be back with you next week. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and as always, drink more water.